Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsan, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. So we have had a hugely tumultuous time over the last few weeks, obviously with the invasion of the Ukraine by Russia, and that's obviously created huge amounts of uncertainty uh, both geopolitically, for financial markets, for interest rates, uh, for the global economy, and all sorts of other uh, challenges around um, NATO and different policy. So a huge, huge amount to to discuss and unpack with respect to that. But uh, we're going to get back to you know the real economy and what the impacts that this war has had on the economy so far, and more importantly, what it means for monetary policy and inflation and economic growth, um, certainly in the developed world in, in US and Europe. And uh, with me to unpack that those questions and hopefully to provide some answers or at least a steer, I have uh, Stefan Gerlach on the podcast today. So Stefan, welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be back. Great. So, um, so I guess let me kind of set the scene as to to where we are on this third um, of March in 2022. So obviously we've had the, the wars kicked off. Um, it's probably lasted longer than Putin probably expected. There is some you know, concern everywhere around kind of what comes next. Obviously it's too too early to speculate that. Certainly, we hope, and, I, and I'm sure the financial markets and the people of Ukraine and indeed Russia hope that some sort of peace deal or ceasefire uh, can, um, can can happen. And uh, you know, and this is one of the challenges of these types of hostilities or these types of events is that uh, resolution can happen very fast, and uh, you know, spiraling away can also happen very fast. I think what's uh, more challenging about this particular period is obviously the speed at which um, sanctions and punitive actions against the Central Bank of Russia and the oligarchs uh, and how quickly everything has happened. And, uh, you know, um, we have a note out. If you're interested, you can get this from the EFG website. Uh, and we call it um, five years in five days, which essentially represents the fact the speed at which sanctions and um, you know, punitive actions were taken against you know, Iran or, or, or Venezuela took five years to enact what we've seen uh, against Russia has happened in five days. So it's the speed of sanctions, just knowing, not knowing what it means for the gas companies and oil companies that are obviously supplying commodities to uh, to Europe and the rest of the world. Uh, can they do it? Can't they do it? Can, are banks even uh, allowed to take a line of credit, you know, for uh, that activity? I mean, those huge amount of uncertainties are, are, are prevalent at the moment and certainly are adding to the the fear and the uncertainty that we have, uh, you know, at the moment. So that is kind of setting the scene of what we have, uh, you know, at, at, at this moment in time. So unfortunately, not many answers today, but certainly over the coming weeks, clarity, I'm sure, will, uh, you know, will appear. And today, by the way, you know, uh, London Stock Exchange suspended trading 
on a lot of the uh, Russian ADRs, which has obviously collapsed, you know, 80 or 90 percent. And MSCI have also taken Russia out of the MSCI Emerging Market Index, but just gives you an, an idea of what the investment community is is dealing with at this moment in time with, you know, just the speed. You know, these companies are all solvent just two weeks ago. You know, we shouldn't really forget how, how challenging and how tricky this is. So let's park that for, for now because some of those are factual, some of those are conjectures, and, you know, they may well change in a few weeks' time. But let's let's go to what I call the real facts. You know, what are the real things uh, and real implications of of, of these events on the global economy and, and, and what is our best thinking around um, the, you know, the, the monetary and, and the fiscal impacts. So as we stand, you know, we have, um, you know, the oil price is around $110. This is West Texas. Uh, obviously spiked dramatically, sort of 20 or $30 over the, over the last few weeks uh, on, on Russia fears. Stefan, how does this, from your perspective, what are the things we should be thinking about with respect to the US and the European economies with these high law prices and, and what do we think the second uh, order impacts are? It's very hard to know for precisely the reasons that you pointed out. Things are moving extraordinarily quickly and so on. It's not even clear to me what some of these uh, oil prices uh, mean. Of course, global oil prices, West, West Texas prices, they have a clear meaning. But uh, there's a lot of, uh, of discussion about uh, what the impact is of changing oil prices on, on the Russian economy and so on and so forth. And there, of course, that doesn't mean very much because we don't, uh, uh, I mean, they can't spend any money that they earn. I think right now, um, the key thing to worry about is the persistence of these uh, of these uh, of these shocks. Prices moving up and down for a couple of days will not have much of an impact. But of course, if prices are are staying high for an extended period of time, this will unavoidably filter into the uh, into the economies. And I think it's easy to see sort of the signs this will happen. Higher oil prices will 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 push up. Inflation, but also slow um, the economy, uh, so it will tend to have a bit of a stagflationary impact on the economy. How large will that be? Well, it depends on precisely how much prices rise, and also uh, for how long prices uh, stay high. And we just we just don't know that. Uh, I mean, if the, I understand that as we speak now, the Ukrainian and Russian uh, delegations are meeting. And I certainly don't expect the ceasefire to be declared now, but if it was, that would have a very big impact on oil prices immediately. And similarly, if the war continues for another two weeks or four weeks or six weeks, the outlook will, will be very different. So I think we just we just don't know. We can. Uh, it's very hard to speculate with something which is so so uncertain. If you were sitting um, in a central bank right now, and you're coming with all this sort of information thrown at you um and you know given you you know you've been in some of those uh, hallways and in some of those rooms um you know throughout your career what are the sort of things what are what are the typical conversations that are happening uh in in central bank world uh, at this point in time I suspect that the bulk of the conversations now will will be essentially to try to figure out what is going on so and so on. You have to remember that uh, central bankers think about these events in a very different way from market participants. 
A market participant or an investor is always worried what happens to asset prices today, to their portfolio today, and how it might respond and uh, over the next couple of weeks and so on and so forth. For central bankers, it really doesn't matter so much exactly what is happening today. They're very happy to wait a little bit until the uh, information becomes clearer um, and so on. So I suspect they are probably less worried in the sense than market particip- participants are are today. Uh, I think they are saying effectively, wow, this is entirely uncertain. Uh, this happened much faster than we had anticipated and the responses from the West in terms of these economic sanctions uh, has been much faster than we have anticipated. And it's very hard to figure out what consequences they will have for the global economy and for our domestic economy. So let's let's just wait and think about uh, think about this a bit. So I think it will basically it will basically uh, um, it will uh, make central bankers sort of less keen to take uh, to take action. I mean, people tend to say, well, you know, sort of the options value waiting. If if it's if uncertainty is very high, options become more valuable, and that you it's better off for you to wait and not uh, not jump into any any specific policy uh, direction. So I think they're basically just frozen for the for the time being, wondering what's going on. Uh, yesterday we had uh, Chair Powell's testimony, um, and uh, you know, in essence, I guess it's very unusually has already kind of given the go-ahead that we'll, they'll probably do 25 basis points um, in, in a few weeks' time. Um, I guess from a monetary policy perspective, that's relatively unusual. It doesn't often happen that... Uh, you know, we kind of know the answer before the meetings even started. Um, what's your, um, um, uh, you know, what, what's your sense of what he said yesterday? What's your kind of you know viewpoint in terms of, um, you know, the approach they'll be looking to take over over the coming months? I thought it was a very interesting uh, set of comments he, he made, and I thought they're probably more interesting in a sense. Because what they sort of said about the general economy, as opposed to the specific weights uh, or events in the Ukraine and, and so on and so forth, and in it, uh, you know, reading them, it's a it's it's a very good read actually. I mean, as he as he says, economic activity last year was very strong, which is slowed a bit now because of Omicron, but probably not not so much. That's pretty much what, what we were thinking too. He does say that labor markets are extremely tight, extremely tight, and that is a uh, um, uh, um, sort of Fed speak for saying that we have full employment effectively. Indeed, I think he says that the unemployment rate is now down at the, at the level that the members of the Federal Open Market Committee in the past have defined as full employment. So we have full employment, he says. He says that effectively, he says that labor demand is, is very, very strong. Um, but he says the labor supply is subdued um, and he talks about employers having difficulties filling job openings and an unprecedented number of workers quitting to take up no uh, new jobs and so on and so forth and that wages are are um, rising at their fastest pace in, in a long time so he makes very clear i think sort of how clearer i think than he has in the past that sort of what's going on very strong demand some restrictions in labor supply he also talks about bottlenecks and um, supply constraints uh, and they are sort of impacting on the uh, on inflation. Interestingly, about 20 minutes ago, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that uh, 
presented, as you know, that new uh, index on on supply chain um, distress uh, just released an update for January and February. They show actually that these uh, supply chain disruptions are 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 sort of going away. Actually, uh, not fully, but they're sort of they've turned, and they are. It looks like these supply chains are starting to work more, starting to work better again. Um, but he, but Chair Powell, sort of does focus uh, on them. He says that they continue to expect inflation to decline uh, over the coming uh, months as the supply constraints ease. Um, but he also says that he also implies that inflation is um, I mean, there's substantial inertia to the inflation rate, and it's not going to drop like a a stone. Um, and he says in these conditions, obviously, monetary policy has to be uh, or this extreme degree of monetary policy accommodation has to be uh, removed. So that entails raising interest rates. And as you said, he sent an extremely clear signal that it would be 25 basis points in the meeting later this month. And um, he also indicates that uh, in general, the Fed will, will, will start to sort of rein in, rein in demand. So it's a, um, um, yeah, it's a very, very clear analysis of the economy. It's probably what, certainly what we have anticipated. I think many other observers have anticipated something similar, but it's just unusually clear. And uh, I mean, if you look at, at, at pricing, as you know, the um, Chicago Mercantiles Exchange has this excellent FOMC calculator, they call it, where they uh, use the market pricing of various futures and so on to calculate probabilities for various policy moves. And this is freely available on, on, on the web. And I just looked at it and uh, 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 the data for yesterday, and they, the markets are now pricing in 98% uh, probability of a 25 basis point increase um, uh, uh, yeah, at the next meeting. And uh, as you know, when we spoke about this at the end of last week, that was 75% and 25% for a 50 basis points increase, and uh, about a week, week and a half ago, that was um, there was something like a third, uh, sorry, a 60 percent probability of 25 basis points, and a 30 percent probability or 40 percent probability of more than so. There have been big shifts in in um, in, in in market sentiment about about monetary policy. Everyone expects 25 basis points, and I'm sure that's what people see. And that is the start of this long process, I think, of monetary policy normalization. The other sort of key um, issue, I guess, is the speed at which they uh, raise, um, you know, interest rates. Uh, any thoughts on that? Obviously, twenty five is in the bag, if you like. Um, how, what do you think of the path? Because one of the 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 key things that, that we notice, certainly in financial markets at the moment, is the Yield curve, this is the difference between 10-year rates and, say, two-year rates. Um, uh, the yield curve is flattened quite dramatically, you know, over the course of the last, uh, you know, 12 months um, and flattened dramatically in, you know, ahead of the first rate hike, which is also very unusual. Often the curve doesn't flatten well in, you know, once you're well into, you know, um, three or four or five rate hikes, uh, we seem to have priced in five or six rate hikes uh, in the shape of the yield curve in in lightning quick time. Uh, any thoughts about the the speed at which things have moved and, and also um, uh, the yield curve shape and what's that telling us? 
Well, so I think markets are pricing in something like six uh, 25 basis points increases in rates in rates this year, and uh, I think that uh, that strikes me as perhaps a little bit a little bit of a high rate, uh, a little bit fast. We have to see what uh, what they actually sort of um, end up uh, end up doing. My suspicion is that. Uh, this, this massive amount of uncertainty that is now increasingly apparent will probably uh, start uh, sort of mean that the Fed is is going to be sort of um, not tightening monetary policy as rapidly as market participants uh, expect. I mean, when, when things are uncertain, as a central banker, why don't you uh, why don't you wait a little? Um, uh, Central banks are just so hesitant to to act too quickly at the risk of having to change direction afterwards. And you know, if you go out as a governor and say, "Well, we tighten monetary policy today because X, Y, and Z," and then you decide a month or two later to to undo that tightening, to cut interest rates, then I mean, that's not a pretty sight. People will journalists will go after you and say. Wasn't this a mistake? I mean, uh, haven't you made a mistake and so on and so forth? And then central banks are going to want to avoid that, so they'll they'll be very hesitant. So I suspect that the um, well, uh, as you know, a little while ago, my seven increases were, were priced into the yield curve this year, and uh, this has been scaled back to six. I uh, I suspect that there could be could see more of a retrenchment, uh, more of a retrenchment there. Um, so I think, um, yeah. Yeah, it was. It, uh, I found it rather amusing. Just uh, you know, maybe uh, three or four weeks ago, that um, every every uh, investment bank uh, was trying to outdo each other in terms of how many rate hikes there would be. You know, you started with six, and then someone raised it to seven, then it was eight, and then someone said, "I come at nine. You know, so so they're all kind of bidding up how much rates should go up. You know, very quickly, and that obviously, you know, um, you know. Certainly, uh, a lot of the investment banks and strategies were trying to create more headlines uh, for themselves to to try and outdo each other. Um, so, um, so moving then on to to, to Europe and the um, ECB, and 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 recently we had the chief economist, um, you know, Philip Lane, making this comment around uh, what he thought, you know, the impact. Of um, uh, Russia-Ukraine war uh, and you know energy prices would do to GDP. I think he kind of threw out a, a half percent uh, as a number. I, I don't think there was any precise size to that. But um, a- any thoughts on what you think the crisis has done to the ECB? And you know, uh, I mean, just a few short weeks ago, you and I were discussing people talking about the first rate hike by the ECB to be happened by the summer. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we kind of raised our eyebrows whether that would actually happen or not. But, uh, you know, certainly um, uh, the chance of that has gone very rapidly. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, um, the region of the world that was going to be most impacted um, by this this war from a macroeconomic perspective will be Eastern Europe. I mean, I, I, if you remember when, when, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1990, the country that was most hit was Finland because Finland exported a very large amount, a very large fraction of the export went to Russia and that, that those exports fell to zero overnight. 
And I suspect that this will be true for all of Eastern Europe. Um, you know, Finland is, is not such a large economy, but I suspect that Poland uh, and so on. As you work your way uh, along the uh, Eastern Europe, all these countries will be directly hit. Uh, and then, of course, the countries are next to them will will also be hit, but to a lesser extent. So there will be clearly be a slowdown, I think, in Eastern Europe, and therefore you will have a that will filter over to the euro area. The euro area trades a lot with with Eastern with Eastern Europe. So um, it is just really difficult to imagine that uh, um, that ECB is going to want to do anything this uh, this uh, this year. I mean, they may stop the. Uh, pandemic bond purchases because they've said that they will do that effectively. And if you say something like that as a central banker, it's really important for you to deliver on things that you that you say that you will do or very strongly imply that you will do, which is actually the reason why central banks very rarely want to commit to do anything because they know they have to deliver on it. <laughs> so they will stop that, but we have to see thereafter. Yeah, it's just hard to imagine that they, can, uh, that they will decide to raise interest rates in the near future, those plans must have been delayed. Uh, let's not raise them until we know for sure that the economy, um, the European economy is doing well again. So so I suspect no no tightening, no no increase in interest rates this year in, in the euro area would be my um, would be my guess. Mm. And that certainly had an impact on the dollar euro rate and you know Euros um obviously sold off on that uh, uh on, on on that change um if you like. So I I don't think there'll be Kind of any huge, uh, any huge surprises uh, with that. Uh, what about the the Bank of England uh, here in UK? What's the, um, um, you know, will they have reason to pause? I guess they're less affected um, than uh, you know than, um, than than Eastern Europe or, or, or Europe, and obviously we're, yes, we're yes. much a services based economy. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, and uh, so, I, I mean, if if you want to, I think the U.S. will be most affected. The U.K. will be less affected. Sorry, uh, the U.S. will be the least affected by these developments. The U.K. will be a little bit more affected, but not that much. And most affected would be the ECB. So perhaps it will be, it will probably introduce or slow the extent to which uh, or the speed by which the Bank of England tightens monetary policy. But uh, but uh, as you say, I mean, for the reasons that you point out, I, I don't think there would be a big change in Bank of England policy because of that, at least not given what we've seen the last week. But again, as you, as you know, this is a very fast moving set of events and uh, we have to see what happens, uh, what happens next week. Oh, absolutely. So, um, Maybe turning our attention to the, I guess, the big question that everybody has at the moment is around, um, you know, oil price and and stagflation, and um, you know, what, you know, what that, um, you know, whether we actually get that and parallels to the seventies and various other things that um, uh, that people obviously think about and remember. Um, what's your what's your sense around, uh, you know, the the um, you know, the recent sort of, um, particularly sort of oil commodity prices impacts on inflation on short term, and and um, you know maybe you can draw some parallels around the kind of the stagflation debate. Yeah. So, uh, so first, what is stagflation? Well, that is uh, essentially a supply shock, something that increases firms' production costs, like high oil prices. Uh, 
that uh, makes it difficult for firms or makes makes firms unwilling to sell goods at the current level of prices they start pushing up prices and of course all of this sort of slows the economy higher production costs will of course slow the economy now we have not really had that many examples of big stagflation shocks stagflationary shocks the last one we had were in the 1970s that's all that's uh, that's 50 years ago uh, or 45 years ago we had oil price increases in 73 74 and in 79 80 i think um there are some very important differences um and that i need to have in mind the first of those is that the, the increases in oil or the percentage increase in oil prices are much smaller uh, now the, the second is that um, the economies have become less dependent on, on oil. If you think of the amount of oil that you need to produce one unit of real GDP, that has collapsed over time as economies have become more energy efficient and so on. So the sensitivity is lower. You also have to remember that um, the 1970s was a big problem for, for, for economic uh, policy makers, they've never seen a stagflationary shock like that, and they don't happen frequently. And in those days, they had a um, the policy choice, as they saw then, was you would either tighten monetary policy to deal with the inflationary con- uh, consequences of higher oil prices at the cost of an even bigger recession, or you would use expansionary monetary fiscal policy to maintain uh, employment at the cost of even higher uh, inflation. And many, many countries picked the, 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 the second policy uh, choice, that is they pursued quite expansionary policies and then pushed up inflation in a number of countries to 15, 20%. I think the UK was up at 20%, if not even more than 20%. Um, now, I think they, ha- they have now, and of course, then also we had a very high degree of unionization, labor force, and the m- manufacturing was very important, manufacturing unions were important, and so on. And that meant that these, and we had actually, in some countries, we even had indexing of wages to inflation. So they generated an immediate the wage push um, um, as well. But we don't have wage indexation anymore. We don't have... Uh, or, or labor unions are much less important uh, these days. And I think policymakers have learned that if you have a contractionary supply shock, if something drives up the uh, firm's production costs, uh, higher en- energy prices, well, there's nothing you can do about that with with expansionary fiscal, fiscal policies. The best thing you can do is probably just let it show up uh, in, a, in a temporary burst in um, you know, in in inflation, and then and then uh, I hope that once prices have adjusted, the inflation will fall fall back. And it seems to be pretty much what people are are, are doing now. We haven't seen a lot of responses to this pickup in uh, in in oil prices. There have been some responses, but in many many ways, they are to I think to avoid the impact on the um, income distribution from these uh, from these changes. Of course, politically very difficult when um, uh, one group of society ends up uh, having very large increases in cost of living and to have no way of increasing their income. And, and I guess policymakers are responding to that. But by and large, I think policymakers' response to this would be very different. It would be much more, let's, well, let's, let's not stimulate the economy. Um, and at the same time, let's not sort of tighten monetary policy preemptively 
that just sit and wait and let it sort of work its way through the uh, through the system. So one of the, um, in fact, your your very recent note just over the last uh, twenty four hours was um, is on break even rates and um, and inflation and what break even rates are actually telling us. Um, can you give us a, a quick pricey of uh, of your note and um, you know what insights uh, uh, break even is actually giving us at the moment? Yes, so um, I was interested in uh, what uh, what break-even inflation looks like. So first, what is that? I mean, in the U.S., you can buy bonds that are ordinary treasury securities, or you can buy treasury securities that are linked um, to the CPI. So you get a compensation if there is an inflation. So you have two two bonds that are they are supposedly identical. In fact, they aren't really. But they are supposedly identical in all ways except that one has embedded inflation compensation. And by looking at the spread between the, the yields on these two bonds, you can get a, a measure of the expected rate of in, of inflation. Um, and um, my thought then was that um, uh, a number of commentators are saying we will have very high inflation for a long time. Well, will market participants, uh, I mean, do they agree? Are they pricing this into these break-even inflation rates that we can observe in the U.S. Treasury market? And so I decided to look at that. And I looked at data. So the data were, uh, were a little bit um, uh, came from last uh, for last week, and there have been a sort of few changes. These rates have risen a little bit uh, recently, not that much, but um, they have risen a little bit. So. So last week, uh, the uh, break-even uh, inflation rate uh, for, for for five years was two point eight percent. For seven years, it was two point six percent, and for ten years, it was two point four percent. So that is the average expected inflation rate priced into these securities. Uh, that's a standard way of, of interpreting it. Now, if we know that. Um, the so, so first, these numbers are low. It looks like, on average, market they expect two point eight percent inflation over the next five years. Inflation is currently above seven percent. The U.S. CPI inflation these are indexed to the CPI. Um, uh, so that the only way, so if markets are pricing in two point eight percent for the next five years, and the current inflation rate is seven, they must expect the inflation rate to fall rapidly and actually fall below, uh, below 2.8% uh, during this five-year period. As I said, today, these things are no longer 2.8%. I think they're 3.2%. So they've gone up a little bit. But um, um, if you don't have these, uh, these break-even inflation rates for five years, up to seven years, up to 10 years, you can calculate uh, a, a measure, sort of a term structure measure of the... Um, of the expected inflation rate, and that would say then uh, over the next five years, if we're using uh, last week's data, the uh, the um, uh, expected inflation rate was 2.8%, and then by comparing the five and seven year break-even or even rates, you can calculate that for the next two years, for years uh, six and seven, uh, the uh, um, break-even inflation rate is 2.2%, or from seven to 10, it would be Two percent. So you can see immediately that the markets seem to be pricing in inflation declining towards two percent. And if you're willing to make an assumption that this sort of decline towards the new steady state is sort of uh, is is happening at a fixed rate, then you can actually calculate something 
um, which which I which I calculated last year, and then I compare them with swap rates, uh, swap uh, spreads, uh, inflation swaps, and they're virtually identical. And that basically said last week markets were, pri- were pricing in inflation of this year of 4.3 percent, for next year 3.1 percent, for three years ahead. 2.5 percent, so a very gradual decline, but still a quite a rapid decline, and that suggests we'll be back at around two percent in three, four years. Um, so markets do not seem to believe what some of these newspapers commentators are, are saying. That is, we have moved permanently into a high inflation regime, and uh, uh, if you think it's bad now, it's going to get even worse. Um, so that was quite instructive, I think. It was an interesting little exercise. So, so in summary, essentially, we have these kind of elevated inflation rates for a, for a couple of years, and as we go further out the curve, they kind of trend back to the two percent level uh, on exactly, on, on exactly, trends, yeah. Um, and um, you know, obviously, that ultimately drives where peak interest rates well may, may look like, and uh, and obviously uh, peak um, you know bond uh, yeah. bond yields. Yeah, I think I think one thing which is sort of interesting with these things, the point I, I perhaps I should have made more clearly in this report, is that um, you know the pricing of these index bonds and versus ordinary bonds, market participants take positions in these markets. You can think of that. That one way of putting that uh, uh, to make it clear to, to people is that they're effectively betting on the future evolution of inflation in the U.S. So they have every incentive of getting these bets right. Whereas when you need, you read newspaper commentary, um, these are people who are just sometimes are just talking, and uh, there's you know they you can you say what you say, you know if you if you if you make a mistake, it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter hugely if you if you buy uh, real or, or nominal bonds. Um, and you ha- and uh, inflation moves the, the other way. You have every reason to get these uh, inflation expectations right, and that, I think in many ways uh, it makes it more natural to look at um, to look at these embedded uh, uh, expected inflation rates and embedded in, in these bond yields because the people have very very strong financial incentives in getting these uh, yields, if you like, right. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So that's that is very interesting. So. Um, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of kind of inbound questions we get at the moment is, you know, is this a new era for stagflation? Is this, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, this is, you know, rehash of, of the seventies. I, I think, you know, certainly the way the, the sort of short and medium term fixed income markets are, are positioned very much the opposite way. Um, and, uh, kind of more of a normal, you know, two percent, or or maybe slightly more elevated than two percent uh, level. That's still probably higher, I would say, than what we saw over previous sort of ten or twelve years, um, the, where they've obviously been a lot lower. Yes, I mean, I think it's important also recognise that if you think of sort of gradual changes in the steady state or average inflation rate over a couple of years and so on. Well, they're you know having running the inflation rate on average fifty basis points higher or half a percent higher matters hugely over a longer investment horizon. Mm. So uh, there can be a lot of stuff hidden behind these numbers. You look at them and you, you, and you say, "Well, it looks like we return, we're going back to normal," uh, but that need not be so. These are quite crude, uh, quite crude things, and sort of getting a, if you get the level 
wrong a little bit, you say, well, you know, you get it wrong, let's say, well, 50, half a percent over 10 years. Well, uh, that uh, has a very big impact on the uh, on the realized return on, on these investments. So, they, so this is, I think, uh, uh, this is really more to be thought of as a short-term measure of a market anticipated uh, uh, about uh, what inflation would be. That could still be very gradual, cumulatively large changes in steady-state inflation rates that wouldn't really pop out of these of these calculations. Okay, well, interesting. So um, I guess the other big question we're getting is is around the impact of all prices on, well, in first the inflation, of course, and also the impact of all price on consumer expenditure. Um, any thoughts around that? Yeah, so... Um, I mean, it, if you look at at, at US uh, at US data, I mean, it's quite it's quite clear that the the pass through there's a very very quick pass through of changes in oil prices to the consumer price index, and and some of this is of course uh, just uh, it comes directly because you, you in the consumer price index you have, you have to buy fuel for your car or heat your house and you use so use oil and so on that that impact. Uh, would be very large. And I think it's a rule of thumb there. I think you could say if, if oil prices rise 10% in a month, if it's a tend to push up the monthly inflation rate by 1%, like 10 to 1 ratio, I think is a sensible rule of uh, rule of thumb for, for, monthly, uh, for monthly changes. It's very clear that these things will feed through very rapidly. Now, in general, the oil prices... Uh, you know they tend to fluctuate the sort of at the level. Uh, you, you know we, we may have an average level of I don't know six to seventy dollars per barrel over a twenty-year period, and sometimes there are a hundred, sometimes there are thirty or something, even down to zero and so on. But they do feed in very very quickly in in inflation rates. And I think it's clear that the price increases that we've seen recently will uh, will feed in uh, will feed in directly to these. Um, to these uh, inflation rates, it's much harder to know what they will do to economic activity uh, and so on. Uh, that's uh, that is a uh, that's a difficult uh, that's a difficult question, but uh, but it's clear that they're going to show up in in, in inflation rates, um, um, yeah, very rapidly, very rapidly, mm. and particularly so in countries in which. Uh, oil is used to produce um, um, electricity. Uh, for instance, Switzerland is a country where that is not the case. Uh, electricity in Switzerland comes largely from you know, these big uh, dams they have up in the in the uh, in the mountains, and uh, um, I mean, it's a water-powered electricity in a sense, and, and a few nuclear power plants. So we haven't actually seen much increase in energy prices here in that way in Switzerland. But in other countries, of course, this will have a very big impact on the cost of electricity and feed in directly in inflation rates. Interesting. So um, we're kind of drawing to to the end of this discussion. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to to maybe sort of kind of coming back to one of the earlier questions uh, that uh, I posed to you around kind of central bank thinking. Um, and it's always kind of fascinated me, you know, as we enter into the, the you know, the period when um, 
board members are are thinking about you know raising interest rates or cutting interest rates or whatever it may be um maybe you could um you know f- for for many of us who are uninformed in these sort of matters you know what is the run up so you know we we've, we've got the meeting in a couple of weeks time what is the kind of run up what's the preparation that tends to happen ahead of these you know very important central bank meetings be it the federal reserve or the ecb or the bank of england um maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of you know um um and a sequence of events um that that, that that tend to happen towards these meetings so um uh, yeah well i think it's pretty much the same in in uh, in every in every central bank I, i was actually asked together with a with a with a colleague who is a professor at london business school to review the monetary policy process in, in a european central bank and exactly how this was done and so on and so forth and uh, and uh, uh, so it's pretty much the same everywhere essentially it, um, it involves first uh, the first thing that has to be done is you have to make some assumption about what the external economic environment will be because in all economies what happens abroad will determine what happens at home montreal at home is not very powerful if you have a big expansion coming from abroad then you're going to have an expansion at home and if you have a contraction abroad you're going to have an air contraction at home there's little montropolisy can do it can do a bit but not it can't really offset sort of the big the big um uh, you know effects coming externally effects so that's the first thing so you have to make assumptions of, about that um and that's the key decision actually in many ways if you think the rest of the world is going to be very strong growth is going to be strong inflation pressures from abroad are going to be strong well that's when you if, if that's what you're going to assume you know you're going to have the tighten monetary policy and if sell if you if the opposite is the case you're probably going to have to relax the monetary policies uh, so these are very very important assumptions then the staff will work out a forecast for the domestic economy ideally Uh, and then thinking about how that forecast will depend upon what monetary policy is what you do with interest rates and um, perhaps even what you will do with with uh, with QE uh, and so on one thing you will um, uh, uh, you will find there is pro- the economy is actually not that sensitive particularly not in the sort of in the short run or inflation is not that sensitive to monetary policy many commentators are not aware of this but if you tighten monetary policy now as the rule of thumb it slows the economy next year and it slows inflation two years ahead so if you want to tighten the monetary policy now it's because you think inflation in 2024 is going to be high otherwise um uh, so this is why uh, central banks do uh, sort of do uh, do forecasts to try to see what the economy is going to look like you know, a year or two ahead and, and try to figure out how monetary policy will impact on the economy um now um um the other thing that the central banks will do before a monetary policy meeting is that they will have the staff look into a number of t- questions like the questions that you and I have been talking about here like what will the impact for instance be high wheat prices on inflation uh, at home uh, or how will oil prices higher energy prices impact on inflation or economic activity and so on and so forth and they will have various sort of statistical models to uh, to look at this now central banks of course have very large economics departments and they just spend 
would be be an inconceivable amount of staff time drilling into these questions. I mean, central banks, uh, they're very profitable because, hey, you know, they print money and they they can really use the, uh, the profits that they make, but they can certainly make sure that they have all the resources that they feel that they need to analyze the economy. So they have large economics departments and there are people looking, drilling into every aspect of these um, of these um, sort of these developments. I mean, for instance, it would not be unusual for a central bank to have a single economist working full time on the cement industry. Why the cement industry? Because it's an instantaneous indicator of building activity. Uh, you don't really transport cement outside the country; it's too heavy. So, if a lot of cement is being sold, you know that people are building. And so, so they just have st- uh, staff economists d- drilling into the most minute details of the of the economy. Then all of this information would be given to the uh, decision makers, which in most central banks, it's a combination. It's it's a, it's a, the governor of the central bank, um, and per, and a couple of other members. Typically, there's a monetary policy committee in Switzerland. There are three people in in. Uh, uh, at the Bank of England, they have the Monetary Policy Committee. Of course, the ECB has the Governing Council, consisting of the six members of the uh, six um, board members in Frankfurt, plus the nineteen national governors. In the case of the Federal Reserve, is, if they is the FOMC, uh, the Federal Open Market Committee, and then they will discuss these uh, these forecasts and their and the staff's analysis. Um, and then they will make a, a decision. And uh, as you can imagine, this is a very slow for, uh, slow process. So by the time you get to the decision points, the initial assumptions that you made, you might have made about, for instance, oil prices, they may be entirely outdated. They're six weeks old. Um, so a lot could have happened in the last six, uh, six weeks. Um, or they may be four weeks old. And all the other assumptions are, you know, a couple of weeks uh, couple of weeks old and there could be other factors that have impacted on the economy which means that you think that well on average it is true that if as i said before for instance i, I gave this idea of this being a 10 to 1 relationship between all the changes in oil prices and changes in consumer prices 10 percent change in oil prices lead to a one percent change in consumer prices well that would be an average over an extended period of time but then the, in the short run uh, uh, just now, it could well be that that relationship will be very different for, because of some some factor, um, and so you have to have a lot of policy judgment. You just can't uh, you just can't take these uh, staff forecasts and staff models and so on and so forth and say, well, this is what's going to happen. The staff tells us, so you know, let's just go ahead and do what they what they think we should do. It's, it's uh, you have to uh, you have to apply apply judgment, and that's what happens in these policy meetings. And I can tell from the policy meetings that I attended at the um, uh, when I was deputy governor of Central Bank of Ireland, it does happen in policy meetings that someone says some member policymakers just ask a question or makes a point, and everyone realizes that that point has been missed, and uh, um, consequently. They say, well, that's a very good point you made, Moles, Governor Moles. It's a very good point you made. We haven't thought about that. Mm-hmm. But if that's true, then perhaps we should do, we shouldn't do what we thought we would do. We should do something else instead. So individual policymakers can be very influential. And I think from my um, limited experience in sort of seeing this, it's uh, uh, the people that are most 
influential, I think, not necessarily sort of technically very competent economists, uh, but people that you, you, who have good judgments, people whose judgment you, you, you know, it's a very hard question. We actually, when true, you know, if you, when push comes to shove, we actually don't really know. We know pretty well what where the economy was a month or two months ago. We don't really know what the economy is doing right now. And someone has to make a judgment about this. And someone has to make a judgment about what actually the public and financial market participants anticipate and what they think. And someone has to go out and stand in front of the journalists after the decision is made and say, we did this. We raised rates or we cut rates, we adopted QE or we stopped QE. And must be able to explain these to the public in such a way that most people say, yeah, it makes sense. That's the sensible. These are reasonable people. That was the sensible decision. So people that tend to be most influential are the ones that sort of can combine these characteristics. Uh, uh, They are seen as having good judgment. They are seen as not panicking. And they are able to explain clearly to the public why certain decisions um, was taken and why this was reasonable. And I think, for instance, Chair Powell is an excellent example of that. Actually, he's not an economist, even by training. He's very, very good, I think. Uh, but he's, he comes across as being very credible. Um, uh, and uh, it, well, I can think of other policymakers who don't come across as being as credible. But, but anyway, but this is sort of what you, I think you're looking for this is in a policymaker, and this is sort of how the process works. It starts with this technical staff work early on, and then it goes through the whole chain of command. And at the end, some people actually have to look at this and say, "Well, what what do we actually think?" The five of us, sort of the ten of us, who have to set set policy. It's a long, uh, it's a long process. Very, very interesting. I think that's, a, a, I guess, a very useful journey for a lot of us to. Uh, um, to, uh, to to understand in terms of you know how how this uh, goes and I guess in the end it's the people around the table who are going to make their decision and obviously the the chairman has the uh, casting vote um, which uh, which I think is it's also it. important. I, I think yeah. in some sense what has struck me uh, is that this is a little bit the same thing as deciding and. An asset allocation, you have all these different views about what's going to happen here and there and what assets are good. At the end of the day, someone has to decide, well, how do we synthesize this and what is a good portfolio to hold? And that's exactly the same thing. It calls for a lot of experience and judgment and ability to explain uh, explain this. Hopefully a little bit of luck to go with it as well. Um, <laughs> you always need a bit of luck. Um, so, <laughs> Stefan, thank you very much for for those insights. I think it's a, uh, a very useful, very important topic, uh, particularly in this period of uh, you know high level of uncertainty. Obviously, central banks will have a huge part to play over the coming months uh, in terms of um, not just um, the um, you know financial markets, but certainly on on the economic uh, developments as we as we go f- move to this kind of post COVID world. Uh, so, Stefan, thank you very much. Uh, that wraps us up for uh, for today. And um, uh, next week, we actually have uh, Daniel Murray, uh, who will be um, uh, leading the podcast. Uh, I will actually be traveling next week in Latin America. So maybe I can give, provide you some insights to my trip uh, when I'm back. Uh, but with that, uh, we'll stop there and uh, speak to you soon. 